Welcome to the Poetic Devices Podcast. I am your host, Kay Crow, the bird bard and the traveling typist. Each episode will discuss the stories, philosophy, and realities of my life as an on-demand typewriter poet. Whether in a five-star hotel or hitting the streets, my typewriter and I travel to bring poetry to the people. So tune in for Poetry in Motion. And welcome to the Poetic Devices Podcast. I am your illustrious host, Crow. If you are tuning in for the first time, I make my living as an on-demand typewriter poet. What does that mean, you and all of my relatives are probably asking? Well, I appear like an unexpected daffodil at events, in parks, during weddings, at beaches, etc. with my typewriter. And to clarify, people invite me to their weddings. I don't just show up unannounced. So, at these places, people give me a word. They give me their money. That part's important. And then I write them a poem and I read it aloud because I am dramatic. But what people are paying for isn't just a poem and a performance. It's less transactional than that. They're also paying for the bravery it takes to show up somewhere with a typewriter and say hello Yes, I will write you a poem. People are paying for my sheer audacity. And that's why today's topic is on creative bravery and the courage it takes to just show up and say, yes, I can do this thing. Watch me fly. And as a side note, today's episode will be recorded entirely in one take, so please enjoy. (laughs) So part one, the audacity. First off, let's talk about how bonkers this first draft as last draft mentality is. Nearly every writer I know lives by the rule of revise, revise, revise. It's how we're raised. It's what we're taught. We have it ingrained in us from a very young age that the real gold of writing comes out through the act of revision. Well, what do you do then when your first draft is your last draft? Have a heart attack, according to the many writers that I meet when I tell them about what I do and how I do it. They say they would never, never, ever be brave enough to set their first drafts out into the world. They say they have no idea how the hell I have the balls to do that. They raise their eyebrows and act like I just told them I want to hippopotamus for Christmas. So, on-demand typewriter poetry is subversive in a lot of ways. It democratizes poetry and gets it out of the ivory tower and into the world. It brings art directly to the people. It invites strangers to play. It is an excellent model for practicing consent out in the world. And it turns everything you thought you knew about the writing process on its head. It is revolutionary because of its accessibility and its lack of pretense. This process and these methods gleefully abandon tradition, even as I'm working on machines that are sometimes over a hundred years old. And there is a beautiful sort of irony in that, if you ask me. So, 
what happens when you abandon everything you thought you knew about the writing process and try something else? Well, to illustrate, let me tell you a story. Let me first get this out of the way and admit that the first time I did on-demand typewriter poetry, I was scared out of my freaking mind. It was 2021, and my friend Colty invited me to a small market at the Extraordinarium, which is a comic book and toy shop. Toy shop. Visualize, like, nerd paradise. There's this indoor mini-golf putt-putt court that they, like, clear all the obstacles off and let all the vendors set up on. And there we were. There weren't very many patrons at the start, so Colty had a suggestion. They suggested that I warm up and write poems for the other vendors, pro bono, based on their store names. So, I did, and I secretly delivered them. I remember one that I wrote. Uh, it was for this woman who was a Latina coffee roaster, and her uh, store name was Bruja, B-R-E-W-J-A, and... I just love that store name, and I remember it to this freaking day. I wrote her a poem. I wrote a bunch of other people's poems, and the response I got was so heartwarming. I walked over, I slid them onto their table, and I walked away, and so many of them came back and gave me cake, coffee, and a couple of them actually paid me in cash money, which at the time blew me away. They loved it. And they were so generous and so kind, and I felt the connectivity that nowadays I've come to call typewriter magic. Now, you would think after that roaring success, I wouldn't have any problem going out on my own and street performing up a storm. Well, you'd be so incredibly wrong, my friend. In April of 2021, we founded the Typewriter Tarts and we went out and performed in tandem as a group. There was always the safety net of doing it with a group of people. It felt comfortable and it felt safe, which, when you are a small person being perceived in a, as a woman in public, is a real consideration. But it wasn't just a sense of physical safety. It was a sense of emotional safety too. I was out there, but I wasn't alone. If I got rejected by some passers-by or people just weren't interested in the poetry that day, the group was there to help me shrug it off. Personally, I am prone to making things feel like a personal failure if they don't go my way, even when they're not. So the group really helped. Thing was, not everyone was always available to go, to go out and street perform whenever I wanted to. I didn't get up the chutzpah to start busking solo until August of 2021, almost four months later. But as I did, I learned the ropes and my confidence grew. Nowadays, I throw on an entire street performing costumed persona, wig included. <laughs> Side note, I named the wig Belinda. I parade around town like a circus clown who doesn't give a single flying... Uh, let's say duck. At events, on the street, I create surprise, immersive experiences for people. Part of it is what I call the big side quest energy that stumbling on me has. Part of it's the costuming. Part of it's the typewriter. But the linchpin is the wild proposition, give me a word 
and I will write you a poem. But I didn't start there. It took me time to get there. And the two things that held me back from starting this journey on my own were fear of the unknown and shame. So, part two. Let's talk about shame. To do this work, you have to suspend your disbelief in your own inability. Now, I know that can be hard, but I've watched fantasy and science fiction movies all the time. You can suspend your disbelief that nine-foot-tall blue aliens are walking around on the screen on a distant planet glowing in the dark. But you can't suspend your disbelief that maybe you could write something if you gave it a shot. Which of those two scenarios seems more unlikely? We're all conditioned to think we can't do it. That we can't do the thing, whatever it is. Well, I guarantee that you can. All that is stopping you is the fear that what comes out of you will not meet your own standards and the standards of those around you. Well, I have a secret for you. Screw the standards, at least in the beginning. Something is yearning to be created by you, and you are damaging both yourself and it by not setting it free. Also, I'm going to let you in on another secret. Do you look at your art and you think it's terrible? Well, that's great, actually. That is exactly where you want to be. And now I bet you're looking at me like my head has fallen off, so allow me to explain. If you look at something you made and called it bad, then I have news for you. That means you have good taste. That means you have a strong sense of aesthetics and a knowledge of what you consider to be good and bad art. People without that sense will never be great at what they do. They will be stuck making terrible art forever. But not you, because if you keep showing up at the table, then eventually you will start making art that lives up to your own standards. But in the meantime, why not enjoy it? just enjoy the process of making things? Do you think children hold their coloring pages to the highest standards of aesthetic beauty? No. They just create for the sheer joy of creating. And I'm going to tell you to do the same thing. Check out Julie Cameron's The Artist's Way for tips on how to do that. She is great. I've been dabbling with her program for a few months now. Highly recommend. Of course, maybe you're stuck in the mud of shame. Maybe no one has ever told you you had the potential to create, let alone create spontaneously. Or maybe they specifically told you that you were dumb and inadequate and conditioned you to believe so strongly in your own inability that giving it up now seems like giving up a part of who you are. So for this part, I'm going to reference a writer called A.J. Bond, who wrote a book called Discomfortable, which is all about shame. And when those feelings pop up, the trick is to look at them. Shame hates when you look at it. When you, the feeling crops up like, I could never do that. Look at it and say, of course you feel that way. You were raised with that belief. How could you possibly feel anything else? But be gentle with yourself. And by looking those feelings in the eye and saying, of course, it's completely logical I feel this way. 
You can put it to rest and go on and keep creating anyway. You don't have to let the shame drive. So, once you've put shame to rest, what happens next? Part 3. The Philosophy of Creative Bravery You have to be brave enough to show up at the typewriter in the first place. You have to overcome the shame and conditioning that you can't do it. And you have to bring yourself to the machine. You have to find the strength to show up in the first place. And from there, you have to believe in the fact that there is something inside of you that can and will come out. You have to trust in yourself that in showing up at the machine or the canvas or the page, something is going to come out. And you have to surrender your notions of quality or form, at least at the beginning. As Julie Cameron said, you'll take care of the quantity. Leave quality up to the force outside of yourself. You have to let it come out, and through the act of bringing yourself to the table, and through the act of being brave enough to believe in yourself, something in you will be expressed. Now back to Julie Cameron. She uses the phrase, the quote-unquote, great creator. Now, you may be familiar with that phrase as it has been applied to various Native American concepts of deity, but what she's talking about is a little bit different. Out there somewhere is a great creator, but you are also a creator. The great creator is a creative spirit that seeks expression through you. In another perspective, the ancient Romans invented the Latin word genius, genius, which I'm sure you're familiar with. But genius wasn't something you possessed or that was inside your head. The full phrase was genius locus, which referred to the spirit of a place. They believed the spirit or inspiration or whatever you call it dwelled outside of you and just came to visit every once in a while. The Greeks had a similar concept of the nine muses, bringing down inspiration to humble artists and thinkers alike, like Calliope and Terpsichor and all those good ladies. The Greeks and the Romans believed that the spirit of creative inspiration was something that was beyond us. Now, you'll notice here that our art ancient artsy-fartsy forefathers were way different than we are today. They attributed their great ideas to some force or spirit outside of themselves coming through them. Now, that kept them humble, but it also made it not their fault if they found themselves in a dry spell. Oh no, my genius didn't show up to work today. He's still asleep in the walls of my bedroom. Oh well. Now, whether you believe in spirits or not, what has helped me is the most Julie Cameron-like perspective that views your as-yet-unwritten words as something real, something alive that wants to be birthed through you. And it's only going to come out if you are brave enough to come to the typewriter or the page or the canvas and make it happen. Anyone who has ever done or watched improv comedy is familiar with the principle of yes and. If you haven't done improv, well, what does that mean? 
Well, when you're doing a scene with someone, you have to roll with their actions. If they say the line, what a beautiful day it is in London, you have to say yes and, and you have to run with it. It goes against the principle to say, what's wrong with your eyes? Can't you see we're in Monaco? That undermines the basic principle. The bravery of saying yes to showing up at the typewriter extends to the bravery to say yes and to showing up with whatever words spill out of you and onto the page. You not only have to have the courage to believe that there is something inside of you that wants to come out, you have to be brave enough to yes and your way through the creative work. So let's get down into the nitty gritty. Part four, typewriter as an instrument of yes and. Thus far, I've talked about improv and spontaneous art creation in a general sense. Now I'm going to focus specifically on how it applies to the typewriter. The act of poetic improvisation is beautifully embodied by the typewriter because I don't work on machines that have correction ribbons. There is a backspace, but there is no delete key. You have to lean into, I have to lean into what is generated on the page. Like, if something comes out that you were not expecting, it's not an error, it's an opportunity. Like Bob Ross said, no mistakes. Only happy little birds. I forget how it goes, but you get the idea. Like, if something comes out that you weren't expecting, lean into it. It's a chance to change direction. You can either change your relationship with what was on the page, or rather, what you expected to be on the page, or you can start again. It's an opportunity to change your relationship with your own expectations and come to terms with what actually arrived. This is one of the ultimate expressions of how yes, how to yes and your way through the writing process. You can lean into the fact that, oh, this is going differently than I thought it was going to. Or you can throw out the entire piece of paper and start again. Personally, I would rather follow the new direction. It is so much more interesting that way. This is how I thought it was going to go, but this is how it's going now. The willingness to pivot and see what happens is instrumental in the process of creative bravery and poetic improvisation. Being brave enough to show up at the page in the first place and lean into mistakes as opportunities. Because mistakes aren't mistakes. They just add texture. If I need to X something out, I'm going to go ahead and X something out. Do you need to type over something to get the correct letter in? Type over it. It leaves a mark, and it shows the journey of the tactile nature of the interaction between you, the typewriter, and the page. There's a sort of intimacy and immediacy there, where whoever reads it feels like they're in that moment with you. But that's a deep dive for a different episode. To do this, you have to suspend your shame, or at least suspend your disbelief in your own shame. You have to be willing to work through it or suspend your disbelief long enough to actually get something written. I mean, to expand on this, in life there's no delete key. We are all constantly improvising. 
The rules are made up and the points don't matter. We are all constantly changing our relationship to what we've generated, both intentionally and unintentionally, spontaneously and deliberately in our lives. So, part five, my patrons and their creative bravery. The thing is, it takes two to tango. I can't do this without my patrons, or as I call them, my muses. So, I'd like to take a minute to talk about the other kind of courage it takes to make on-demand poetry happen. Because my muses have to be brave too. They have to be brave enough to encounter me in the wild, to opt in, and to trust me with their input and their vulnerability. They have to be brave enough to say yes to the experience. You see, I sit at my typewriter at a happy hour, at a farmer's market, or at a wedding, but it only works if people approach me to spark the interaction. Otherwise, I'm just some person sitting there with a typewriter. I might as well be some overcomplicated window dressing. Without the ignition from would-be patrons, the art doesn't go. On-demand typewriter poetry is an exchange of energy. It's a give and take, and it only works when people say yes. And sometimes people get really, really brave. And they open up to me and tell me incredibly deep things. Something about the typewriter just inspires connection. But that's for a future episode on the topic of spontaneous trust and radical vulnerability. I have a lot of future episodes in which I have a lot to say. But back to the topic, spontaneous typewriter poetry is an, is an excellent model of consent and play out in the world. But for now, I want to focus in on what it means to have an art form that only works when people interact with it. This is another way that the whole idea of on-demand typewriter poetry is incredibly subversive. Normally, it's just a writer and the page, pouring their heart and soul into the work. But along I come with my weird notion that writing is a dance between myself and a stranger. And they have to be brave enough to give me their money and trust that whatever comes out will be good. In the past, I've had people ask me if the poems I write are going to be good. To which I respond, well, I can write you a bad poem if you want. Bad poems cost the same. You'd be surprised how many people actually say that. So I'm going to leave you with a story of bravery from one of my patrons. That December... I was wearing a fox fur from a dead woman and this sweeping gown I'd pulled from a garbage bin. I had a 1976 Brother Charger 11 typewriter and an overlarge sign that shouted, Poems! This is where a stranger in pearls would tell me about her dead nephew. She would put her hand on her heart. She wouldn't quite clutch the pearls. She would cry, but that point hadn't arrived quite yet. She and her grief would come later. She's going to come because people will tell you all sorts of things over a typewriter. They will tell you about their love, and they will tell you about their loss. They will ask for poems about marriage, and feet, and birthdays, and potatoes. People you don't know will become so incredibly human that sometimes you just have to go home and sob about it. This will be one of those times. We are very fashionable poets. 
though we are on a budget, hence the trash bin dress. The typewriters demand nothing less. They are simultaneously time machines and poetic devices. They take people way back, but also way out and way in. My brother is sitting next to his sister, a 1954 Smith Corona Skywriter. Our table is at the bottom of an escalator in a building off of Michigan Avenue. When you descend the escalator, you have no choice but to see us. You're basically confronted with poetry. We are the weirdest thing at this Christmas market. People love their dogs. I write a lot of Christmas poems for dogs that day. People love their mothers, brothers, fathers, and aunts, so we write a lot of those too. People complain that we don't have envelopes. We make a note to buy some. We don't buy any. The woman arrives after 2 o'clock with her niece. The niece is a 20-something in dangerous black heels, and she looks like she can afford downtown rent. The woman looks like she can afford penthouse rent. She wanders off to look at vintage leather jackets. The niece asks for a poem and tells me about her friend who just got into University of Chicago. Her friend is not doing well. She's living in the same apartment building on Fulton Market that her parents lived in 20 years ago. Her brother is a lawyer. Her sister is a doctor. The friend just wants to be an artist and feels the weight of her family's legacy crushing the hope out of her lungs. So I write a poem for her. The stranger in pearls returns and hears the poem as I read it. Her weight shifts back into her heels and she takes the piece of paper in her hands. She begins to tell me about her dead nephew. He was in the crosswalk when the truck hit him. The ambulance got there in time. Got him to the emergency room just in time. Everything was just in time. His wounds were not externally obvious, but he was road rashed with scrapes and bruises. Now this was in 2020. The ER was stacked to the ceiling with COVID cases. There were no beds. He was placed on a gurney in a back hallway until one became available, except one never became available. He was suffering massive internal hemorrhages. He bled out inside of his own skin, even as the doctors tried too much too late to bring him back to his parents, weeping in the waiting room. Eventually, the doctors came out and informed them that their son had died. He was not supposed to have died. They were supposed to have gotten there in time. But the poem was not for their dead son. The stranger in pearls needed a poem for his mother. His mother, who limped along like a ghost, like she was half dead too, like she had decided her life was a waiting room until she incarnated into the next one. So we wrote her a poem. It began like this. How does each and every come to rest? Tears may be their own form of prayer, but these stories seem so godless. She cried while we read it. She cried while she placed it inside her book, because we didn't have any envelopes. And she cried while she asked if she could hug us. We embraced, and she disappeared up the escalator and back out into the world. The stranger in pearls is not a stranger now. I only knew her for 20 minutes, but her humanity is far more imminent to me than most. I don't know what happened to her sister. However, I'd like to imagine that the poem was a prayer, 
and that it helped her find some peace. And that's a story about people, incredible bravery, and what it takes to bring your heart and soul to a typewriter poet and let them help you metabolize your grief. That's why there are many forms of creative bravery out there, listener. (sighs) And we've reached the end of our time. This has been the Poetic Devices Podcast, last Tuesday of every month. I hope that you've enjoyed this recording. I'm not going back and editing it. You're getting the one take, because quite frankly, that's all my sick ass has the energy to give you. But I hope that you live poetically, and I will see you next time. Ciao for now. Thank you.